This is Bach to Bach, the podcast opening up the world of classical music one beer at a time. And today's podcast contains music that some listeners may find disturbing. Maddie, before we dive into anything music related, you have a, a term for us that we've never heard before this that, podcast. Well, that I'd never heard before. Before I looked, there's we're looking at Notch Brewing a little bit later on. Spoiler alert: Notch down in Salem, Massachusetts, and I came across the term enhanced double decoction when it comes to the brewing process. Wait, say it again: enhanced double decoction. So not just single decoction, and not just Normal single decoction, but enhanced, enhanced double <laughs> decoction. So you may be wondering what the heck that is. And to be honest, before I came across that term, I was wondering the exact same thing. But later in the episode, we will be learning about what enhanced double decoction well, is. Well, it's kind of cool that you brought that up because like, this is an episode of like all new things. Things we don't know about. Things we've not talked about before. The viola. The viola. But also, it's more like also com- the composer we're featuring today is... We've never talked about, we've right. never really, we mentioned at the end of last week's episode. Right. But really it was, it's kind of all all new territory for everything. And so this definition comes right in that, you know. We are blazing new ground. We're doing something. That's right. While drinking beer. While drinking beer. And um, so let's talk about today's composer. So this is Paul Hindemith. So where do you think he's from? Based on his name. Hindemith, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Germany. You nailed it. Wow. That's a very short limb. Nice. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Paul Hindemith, he was a German composer, uh, born 1895, died 1963. Oh. So, died at 60, 68 years old. Okay. No. More than that. Yeah. Maybe. Whatever. You're on the spot. Math's normally quite good in this. Usually. Um, So, little backstory for Paul. He was a violinist originally. And uh, a composer growing up, switched to viola though uh, in 1921, so quite a lot later in his life when he uh, started the Amir Quartet. And Did he trip and fall and get amnesia, or what? The, what? What caused him? I think to, just to low self esteem, oh, probably. Okay. Um, to any violists out there, we we mean what we say. <laughs> <laughs> That's staying in the podcast. Yep. Anyway, so. <laughs> Little little backstory on his history. Um, he was while he was in school studying composition and and violin before he went to viola. He was self made. He was working originally as a as a musician on the side, uh, playing in dance bands and musical comedy groups as a violinist um, to make income while he was in school. Uh, and then in 1917, so we're talking World War One, um, he. Uh, he served in the army and for the Germans. Okay. Um, and as a musician for for bass drum originally. Well, that that clearly didn't work out for them. <laughs> nope. Not in that. But one or the but next then one. very change big change from 1917 to 1918 where he was deployed to the front lines. So <laughs> very with the bass drum. No, no, sans bass drum. But basically, there was quotes from uh from what 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 
source that said like he was basically dodging grenade attacks all the time from the front line, which is Oof. not comforting as a composer and violinist. Quick side question: Have you seen 1917 yet? I have not, not. yet, and I heard that I heard the soundtrack and the the uh, composition behind it is outstanding, and I, I think we should probably see that at some we point. We should watch it. I feel like so many of the composers we talked about have lived through that time and yeah. it's affected how they compose quite oh, heavily. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so maybe just a side note, we should we should check that out. If any of you have seen 1917, uh, let us know how it is, and especially if there was any musical part of it that, that resonated with you. So. so we're gonna take a break. We'll come back and we'll watch the movie and then we'll talk about the rest we'll of the piece. We'll let you know how it goes. Anyway, so after serving in the army, he uh, went back as a musician and composer. And uh, in the 1920s, there was this this movement called New Objectivity, and I'm not going to try to even attempt the German pronunciation. Oh, come on, come on. Attempt, no, I, attempt no, it. no, no, it's not not good, because it's I couldn't even try. So it was called New Objectivity, and basically it was uh, an art movement for all mediums that was against the idea of, of expressionism in Germany. Ooh. So we're talking pre-Nazi um, power, the decade before, yeah, but it kind of set up what was happening for Nazi power. Interesting, and it ended at the rise of Nazi power in 1933. So he was a big supporter of this. So originally, his compositions were not in that expressionist movement, um, and uh, but as you see, his 1930s and later compositions, they they kind of go the other direction. Um, and so looking at his timeline with all of this, this is funny because the piece we're featuring today was in 1922. So this is like at the early start of expressionism um, as a movement. Okay. But before he really went off into a whole new direction in the 30s and 40s. And before we get to the peace stuff, basically end of his life, um, he in the 30s, in the late 30s, he was in America touring as a violist. Um, he emigrated to Switzerland in 1940. And he died at uh, the age of 68 from pancreatitis. Um, but it was, was interesting that he kept composing almost right up to his death. Like Mozart, who we featured last week. Right. Um, so basically, he kept that going. His, he never really stopped writing. Um, we're going to go back, though, to 1922, which is today's piece. So, again, the viola. Right. Our favorite instrument. We've, we have shot on it quite a bit. But hey, Kev, what's the difference between a viola and a coffin? With a coffin, the dead person's on the inside. Oh, but anyway, no. But it again, as I've said in past episodes, for a lot of times, it is my second favorite instrument. Um, this this is unreal. This is so freaking cool because this is very reminds me of Bartok. It reminds me of of Stravinsky. Um, there is a lot of Eastern European influence in this in the sonata for viola and piano. And what's interesting about this is that usually a sonata, just so you guys don't know, it's a chamber piece for two instruments, typically. Mm -hmm. Um, For today, it's piano and viola. And usually the piano's role has some solo parts, but the way that Hindemith wrote this viola and piano sonata was that the piano actually opens up the entire sonata in the first place with a large solo, right. and then the viola comes in. But then in the third movement, which we're featuring today, it has such an integral role. Um, they almost they almost play off each other. I not even play off each other. I think they're just like almost two different characters that that are in the same scene. Oh. Look at it that way. Oh, 
well described. Um, well that, described. Um, it's very interesting how it comes across. And so we actually reached out to our former guest, uh, Drew Alexander Ford, who is the greatest, who is the greatest as AKA that viola kid. Um, you've seen him on YouTube and Instagram and we were still really lucky to get to talk to him. All Holy smokes. He's again. the man. But I, I wrote him and I said, if you could sum up the third movement of, uh, Hindemith, uh, viola sonata, opus 25, number four, um, the final movement, like how in one word or a sentence or, or a mood, like how would you describe it? What do you say? And so his, and here's the, I'm reading the text exactly. Uh, it starts out in a matter of fact way. And then it echoes in a more hollow manner. Then it screams and growls as if possessed by a bout of insanity. And then if it finally comes back to reality and retires in acceptance, Oh, which is like, I'm like, okay. I said, well, that's more than I asked for. That's Thank you. philosophy yes, right there. It's beautifully and it's written. really cool to hear a violist talk about this work in such a deep way from someone who's played it because like, you really have a connection to the piece once you play it. Um, this is not for the average listener. This is not a piece that will most will like. This is this is a this is out there. It's strange. It's it's oddly written. Um, I really think though there is so much, and not anxiety but angst and. Um, and personality in this movement and the whole piece in itself. And I think we should, Kev just brought up a good point, which we've never really talked about before. We play these recordings of people playing these pieces, performing them. And we forget that these performers, whoever they are, Drew, anybody, when they go out on a concert tour, they aren't just, they don't just brush up on the piece a few weeks beforehand and then go off. They are with these pieces. It's a deep dive. Every day, for months, for hundreds and thousands of hours before they're at the point where they're ready to take this on the road. So you do begin to know, and they research intently about all these pieces. So when when Kev says, uh, you, you, you as a performer get to know these pieces intimately, and it does become like a friend. You do get emotionally involved because you've you spent so much time together. I, there's no other way to describe it. You... What you hear about Yo-Yo Ma going back on tour, I think it is late in his early 40s mm-hmm. uh, with the Bach cello suites. And he was spending a day on a measure. Yep. You know, hours on just one single measure of music. So they, they do get very emotionally close. Before I go back to talking about this piece and, and wrap it for the recording, um, on the topic of Yo-Yo Ma and cello players is that like, you know, uh, Pablo Gasals, who's one of the great five great cellos of all time, who rediscovered the Bach cello suites, he, um, at the age of 93, was asked, you know, why do you still practice three hours a day? And he says, because I'm beginning to see progress. Yeah, I love that And quote. it's like, love it, that the quote. whole point, like, you know, you are learning something, but you will always be learning something. So you may master these works, but you will always find a new thing about it. And that's what's incredible about these classical works. There's so much detail and there's so li- many little things to discover about them so, as you work on them. So much nuance. Yes, that's a great word for it. Nice look at yeah, you. Yeah. Um, so this is the third movement of Hindemith's Viola Sonata for Viola and Piano, Opus 25, number four. This is the final movement of it. Um, it's around a, a five-minute or so work, and the recording we're featuring today is by Kim Kashkashian, which is you would think is Kim Kardashian, very different people. Aww. But Kim Kashkashian is, uh, in the words of Drew, uh, she's the goat. She is the greatest of all time, Ooh. as far as viola players. She is. She's a beast, and she just man, holy smokes! She is just this force of nature as a viola player, 
And I've listened to this movement already today five times, and I never get sick of it. It's so engaging. It's sporadic. It sounds like it almost has multiple personalities um, or like just like going through every emotion all in one movement. It's in five minutes. It's unbelievable. So I'm going to shut up now. You're going to listen to this and then hopefully enjoy every bit of it. When we come back, we will talk about Notch Brewing Company. Oh, and Enhanced Double Decoction. So there you have it.
So I love the fake out at the end. There's that bit of unison where the piano and viola are playing the same exact thing. And you think it's going to end that way. And then it doesn't. It does the exact opposite where it just, it's just this, uh, yeah, it just, it, it's a misdirect. And while that was playing, we were commenting on the, the speed ups, the slowdowns, just how quick, how much the tempo is changing. And people forget if in a jazz band, that's one thing when you've got a drummer keeping everything together. When it's just two of you playing off each other and everyone has to still, it's it's the skill behind that. I don't know if folks get a chance to and How much rehearsing that. has to happen for the two of them to understand that those tempo changes. So perfect. And I mean, that the last melody line, the last two minutes, if you go back to like 159 to the end, there's this melody line from the viola part that sounds so much like Bella Bartok, who we've mentioned in past episodes and featured. Um, but there's actually one fact I did not talk about before we go on to the beer today, was that actually Hindemith's work for viola, the, all, all his viola works are the last largest body of works by a composer or virtuoso to date. Um, we can count, like it's all depending on how we count and interpret Bartok's piano music, um, but otherwise Hindemith's um, works for viola are the largest bodies of work to date uh, for a composer. That's my story. And you're sticking to it. I mean, sure. Well, Kev, I want you to think back. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the Pilsner. Remember that? Nope. Go on. It was good times. I can, I can vouch for it. It was good times. It happened. We were talking about the old tradition of you were in a German beer hall. Again, the Pilsner is a German-style beer, and it is a bottom-fermented lager. For everyone who remembers that term, you've got top-fermenting uh, beers and bottom fermenting beers, right, right, so right. the lagers were on the bottom. And there was a tradition in a lot of beer halls where you would, every time you get a new beer, you would never see the bottom of your glass. Those those long sitting glasses were called spikes. Okay. Remember? Yep, yep. And every time you would get a new beer, you would get a notch in the coaster. And when you were done, you'd put the coaster on top. Yep. And they would count the notches and you pay for the notches. So the people at Notch Brewing take a, take a wild guess where they got their name from. It's from the coasters. <laughs> Sorry. I know you were, you were trying to think of something good. I was you? trying to be clever and I couldn't. It, it's so. right. I couldn't think of anything clever either. They named, so they, these guys took their, their cues from the notches in the, in the, the coasters that were uh, being used in German beer halls. And the thing that notch brewing is based in Salem, Massachusetts has really latched on to was that idea of people gathering in, in, in beer halls, uh, in, in a lot of things people don't realize is that in Europe, there's a lot of bars that are exclusively for workers. So in France, there's a series of bars called Cercle du Travail, Circle of Workers. Obviously. And it's, it's basically, it's a place where specifically folks who uh, are in the, in the trades will go to, to, to gather after work and have some beers. Gotcha. So it's important that session beers, sessionable beers are big here because a lot of times you're there at lunch and whatnot. So you got to be able to have a beer, enjoy it and go back and to not work. be miserable after. And like, I know yeah. that in the U S it sounds so terrible, but amazingly the rest of the world does just fine without it, with it. So, um, take note everyone at OSHA. So we are, wow. Yeah. So the guys at notch it's brewing personal. Okay. Know, right? <laughs> so notch brewing has made a commitment, uh, and all of their beers are, 4.5 or less ABV. Really? 
They've taken inspiration from session beers all over the world in different styles and really brought it together. So they've got everything from a uh, New England pale ale to a Scottish sweet stout to a fruited sour to a Kolsch, uh, blonde ales. They've, these guys have covered the, the spectrum of different types of beers. But again, they've, they've made a commitment uh, so that folks can enjoy these while they're at a, at a park with their kids or they can just be out with friends or playing a game. And they can still feel good in the morning. So that, right. that's their dedication. And they've got a side project called the Vol Project we're going to talk about in a very quick second. But today, we, or I, get to sample their dunkle. It's a slam dunkle. Wait, have you, have you just been waiting? I've to? been waiting for that for like oh. 30 minutes. And the dunkle is, is actually really similar to a bock. And we have talked about box and double box, the B-O-C-K. Yes. But the dunkle, this is a, this is a Munich dark lager. And actually... Amazingly, ready for this? Watch it tie all together. Dunkel is the German word for dark. Whoa! So you can say like tonight, look out the window. The tonight is very dunkel. Well, that's how nighttime works. So what happens is the sun. Anyway, we'll anyway, science. Yeah, we'll get into that later. But it, so so their dunkel is a is a eight uh, four point five ABV. But what's nice about these these dark uh, these dark lagers is you get that. You can get the flavor of the the the, the caramel and the the really roasted uh, roasted malts, but uh, so there's a lot of flavor still to a relatively light beer. So, but check out some of the other beers that they brew. It, they've got such a great range. Uh, we did promise about to talk about a brand new vocabulary word. So I'm reading through the description of this this dunkel, and I come across the phrase. Uh, double, uh, no, sorry, no, no, sorry, no, enhances enhanced, the first enhanced double decoction, which yeah. means that there's a double decoction and then someone stepped it up another notch. They brought this as they did, they pushed their glasses up towards their nose and just they, they, they brought it to a spinal tap 11. It's just perfect. So I, I didn't realize this decoction came from a time. The idea of it, basically what the decoction is, is in the brewing phase, you take a portion of the mash out and heat it separately and then stir it back in to raise the temperature Whoa, okay. of the malt. So this was done. And again, this was at a time before there were thermometers, before you could um, measure the exact temperature of the brew you were making. And just for, so folks know, and again, I, we can't explain this all now because there is a visual component component to this. Even if you learn well just by listening, this is something I would go actually check out because it, it, uh, there's a lot of places that graph this out really well when you're looking at the various plateaus of the acid rest, the protein rest, the saturation rest. There's different periods of heating that you go through when you brew. Gotcha. And, 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 and more importantly, how long you stay at these periods because the temperature plateaus and, and keeping it there is a very, that's part of the art of brewing. So double decoc- enhanced double decoction means that not only is a batch of mash taken out once and heated and then stirred back in gradually to raise the overall temperature of the mash, but it's done twice. And then with very specific heating profiles to each one of those little steps. So this is something, this is, this is homework. Yeah. This is homework for everybody because it's very cool. Whether you are a home brewer or not, this is really neat. And a lot of home brewers do poo poo this, not poo poo. They steer away from it because it is labor intensive because when you take this bit of mash out and it can be up to a third of the mash, you wow. to avoid okay. scorching it, you have to stir it quite a bit. 
So it's labor intensive. It's not a it's not a common thing among home brewers, but it's uh, a lot of brewers believe you can't get the same flavors in something like a Dunkel or a Bach that you can get normally without doing this process. It's funny like you mentioned the word it's the art of the brewer, but really like it's it's the science. It's the science behind it that just you you have to truly understand in order to execute properly. And something like this, it's very intricate. This is very detailed, very um, uh, laborious. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And we've said this before. Just a, just a quick note. In the craft beer community, we poo-poo brands like Budweiser and Coors and all those guys, the macro brews. But they they know what they're doing on the macro scale. It's a thing. Yeah, I, we this is and we've pointed this out before. It's worth pointing out again, folks. Brewing even at a large scale is it it requires precision. It's not something that can be done haphazardly. It's, it's baking. It's basically you have to do exactly what the recipe says. And and you talk to the brewers at Budweiser, and they are very proud of what they do because they have the best quality control in the world. I have drank Budweiser in tons of countries around the world. And it's always tastes the same. Now, that that level of quality control, I, we've all had a bad batch of beer. So, yeah. it's, so to 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 I can't to maintain of, that all the time. That that actually is a feat that I don't think people recognize because brewing is not uh, absolutely as, as easy as as we think it is, even on a large scale. So, um, a prop a shout out to all the all the macro brewers so, out there. So transition me to the bowl project. Yeah. So there there Fill are there are going to be those nights and. I think we've we've all ta- had this conversation before. Our ABV is getting a little bit too strong for more than one or two with a friend on a summer's day, right? You can't do nine percent triple hopped IPAs yep. in July. So you can they, you just hate yourself. You, That's you fine, can, right? Anyways, these guys do have they have a side project. The, so Notch Brewing has a side project called the Vol Project. And if nothing else, V-O-L-L? V-O-L-L, yeah. I, I haven't had any of their beers. And for those listening in Maine, Notch is distributed here in Maine. Nappy is the, is the state distributor for those guys. Um, they're throughout New England as well. So if you are in New England, keep an eye out for them. But their Vol Project are the, the, the stronger beers, 5% and above, 5 to 8%, I think. Okay. But my, my big crush here, and Kev, we, I showed you the art. Their can art on this is is very cool it, it's right out of the old soviet uh, propaganda posters between the font the layout it's if anyone has seen that kind of art before uh 19 uh mid 1960s through the 1980s those soviet era posters yeah. uh very bold strong sans serif fonts just my favorite and just very strong colors uh whether the beer uh, we, we should try the beer we'll keep an eye out for the beer but their their can design, which is its own thing, and these are all so basically these are higher ABV by five to eight percent more than their four point five or lower, yep. right? And so yep. it's it's like a very like smaller series. Gotcha. But they're great. But again, today we're drinking the Dunkel from Notch Brewing in Salem, Massachusetts. It's excellent. Give it a try. And if you guys have tried Notch in other formats, let us know because we're definitely on the lookout for more types. But again, figured a German beer to go with the German piece yeah. on this February day. And like it's cool to feature this brewing because like we have not really done many session beers, but session beers across a full spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And it's fairly local. It's like an hour and forty five away, and yeah, this is it's exciting. Uh, definitely gets thumbs up from me on this one. The Dunkel from Notch Brewing, and this whole episode was just all the unknowns. You know, unknown styles of brewing, unknown composer, unknown piece, the obscure ones, and so. 
those are always the great surprises you find. And we oh, yeah. love finding those ourselves. So if you know a piece of music or you know a brewery you want us to talk about that no one knows about or is underrated, tell us. Because that will just, man. Makes our day. Makes and, our day. And we'll get on the road. We need to get on the road and we need to visit some of these breweries as well. We'll go like eight minutes south. It's, it's yep. great. Saco, Scarborough. There it is. On that note, <laughs> it's been another episode of Bach to Bach. Cheers. Cheers. Be sure to follow Bach to Bach on Spotify to get notified of the latest episodes. And keep the conversation going on Instagram with us and follow us on all social media platforms at Bach to Bach. That's B-A-C-H-T-O-B-O-C-K. Cheers and keep listening. <laughs>